To the untrained eye, real estate is the business of shelter, of comfort, of home. But industry insiders know that just behind the curtain resides a world teeming with innovation and disruption and sometimes brutal competition. And there, in the midst of it all, stand our industry leaders, the folks with the answers to our million-dollar questions in real estate. We've got a, one of those leaders here for you today. I'm Jessica Edgerton. And I'm Tarko Heidinga from a leading real estate companies of the world. Let's pull back the curtain. Welcome to Million Dollar Question. This is a Soulfire production. Dan Elsie owns the largest independent real estate brokerage in Michigan alongside his brother, Stuart. Real Estate One and its family of companies is a fourth-generation family business, a century-long legacy that is most certainly not ending anytime soon. Dan has three kids that are now in the family business, and Real Estate One continues to be a leader in the full-service brokerage space in Michigan. Dan and his team lead the company with the understanding that the best agents in the business aren't just salespeople. They are true counselors to their clients' market. Let's hear from Dan. So, Dan, um, let's start out with an overview of the Real Estate One family of companies. Give our audience an idea of the size, history, geography. Uh, yeah, so um, history, we've been around a while, 1929. Uh, f- we're in our fourth generation. My children and brother's children are in the business now. So, um, so 90, 94 years, I guess. Um, and, uh, and it's now my brother, Stuart, and me as the the principals so when three of our kids in the business but footprint were 90 gosh about 95 offices across the state of michigan we're just in michigan Uh, most of those are company-owned offices some are franchised we do the title mortgage insurance property management all those pieces in there uh, about six billion worth of real estate sales uh, 18.5 in transactions add another Four or five thousand transactions for title and mortgage and all those things. So that's our footprint. We're the biggest in Michigan, and I don't know what we are ranked nationally, but somewhere in the top, I think top ten independents or something. So, yeah. So let's talk about your footprint, um, just in terms of the current economic climate. I mean, I, I want to hear your thoughts on the national view too. Uh, it's it's. <laughs> I, I like making reference to The Economist's uh, recent quote that the, the current economy is like Mona Lisa's smile. Um, you look at it one way and walk into the museum the next day, and it's like, oh, no, today she looks kind of verklempt. Um, but uh, given that, so I, I want to hear your your personal thoughts on, on the Mona Lisa smile here. Um, I'm also, you know, fascinated watching what's happening in uh, Michigan, but especially Detroit. Detroit's such a storied city. Um, the highs are highs, the lows are lows, but there is something of a renaissance from from my view that's going on right now. I mean, the Riverwalk's getting built up, and there's there's just there's so much exciting uh, uh, construction and, and movement in the city. So, talk a little bit about um, you know your 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 local situation too for me. Sure. Uh, well, nationally, we've we're, we follow, I guess, what the rest of the country is doing. We're, we're probably a little bit uh, more of a benefit in that we don't have, you know, you have pockets of the country in the Phoenixes and the Las Vegases and those markets where there really are shrinking, inventory is rising and that shift. We we don't have that issue. So we're, we're uh, sales are down like everywhere else. We're probably off peak, you know, off of, off of insanity, we're down to, to normal. So we're 
in our market, Michigan, probably true of the Midwest, we're probably, if you put a year on it, we're probably 2014, 2015, which is a pretty good real estate. Which we're hearing over and over again. Um, now, the difference, of course, is in 2014 and 15, we had 25% uh, fewer realtors. So you, you know, the, the room is a little crowded for the amount of business being done. But um, but still, it's still good business. And of course, values are up dramatically. So in terms of our industry and revenue in our industry, it's, it's um, you know, but it's, it's still hard coming off a peak. And that's the, that's the challenge, the shift. But we're seeing inventories uh, tight. Uh, the pie is shrunk, but it's proportionally shrunk in that there are fewer buyers and fewer listings. But probably at the moment for us, fewer buyers than listings. So listings have shrunk more than the buyer inventory. So we're still 30% of our transactions are multiple offer, which is very high traditionally. That's not the 60 that it was before, but it's still up a lot. Um, now for the city itself, yes, the, the downtown, actually Detroit city itself had a nice renaissance. Um, it was the most affordable section of Southeast Michigan. So when values started to rise, they tended to rise the most in the city because they were the most affordable. So a $40,000 home jumped to 60, 70,000. So that usually happens. But also in the um, downtown Midtown area, which is the Riverwalk, those areas that you referenced, uh, great renaissance there um, from hospitals to, to Rocket Mortgage and their companies to um, Little Caesars Pizza. And there's a lot of different organizations that have contributed to that. So it's it's wonderful, it's vibrant, it's active. It's like everything else, it calmed down a little bit when the market shifted. So it went you know, like this and now it's here, but it's great to see the activity. And uh, it took a while, but now there are, there are uh, condos and developments being built that are not subsidized. For years, there were a lot being built, but it was all subsidized in yeah. some form or another. Now market rents are high enough, there is high in downtown um, Detroit and Midtown as they are in our upper end markets like Birmingham and other markets in terms of price per square foot for rentals. So it's supporting um, new development, which is great to see. So yeah, it is. It's, uh, we still need to, you know, it's, it's still a small, very small footprint. Yeah. But um, our little office downtown is, we've got 20 agents in it and they're doing oh, probably to 200 million in business. So it's a, it's a very active market. That's great. In terms of rate sensitivity, do you feel like um, there are some buyers that are still sort of sitting on their haunches and uh, just waiting for a little bit more of a dip? Uh, you know, I think our market is amazingly active considering interest rates, yeah. considering how many people are sitting on their fence, how many people have got low, in, you know, two and a half, three percent rates. It's amazing how active the market is considering all that. But yeah, there's a lot of, there are a lot of, I think what, we're, what we've seen in the last few weeks is the fence sitters are getting comfortable with the market. They're realizing that their incomes are going up. So that offset two years of four or 5% average uh, um, household income increases knocks off at least 1% of that six and a half. So now we're down in a, to effective rate of five and a half. We get down to an effective rate of under five and, uh, and you'll see some activity pick up quite a bit. In terms of the sell side, are you seeing um, some loosening up of inventory based on folks who 
up until now have sort of been sitting on those ultra low rates that they locked in over the last couple of years. I keep seeing though, you know, life happens. That's going to, that's a temporary problem, right? I mean, eventually you got to gotta continue on with your life um, and not let everything uh, revolve around a 2.5 or whatever you got. We we joke with our, our realtors that, because um, you know, it's the baby boomers that are stopping everything up. They're yeah. just not, they're, they're staying, they're working longer, they're staying in their homes longer. And we joke that, you know, eventually this is the, that clog will break. Now they may leave their homes under a sheet, not walking, <laughs> but they're, they're eventually going to leave. So, right. so the good news is that, and is it breaking up yet? I think a little bit, but I think more, more to your point, uh, life happens is a significant portion of what we do. The discretionary piece is the smaller portion. So life drives it. So when you have a, a an event, and the biggest events that always affect us the most are, are rate changes. When you have a rate jump like that, then you see a business, about 20, 25% of the business is discretionary. So that shrinks right away. But at the same time, if rates were to drop down to 3.5%, the increase would be about 20, 25% as well. That's what we saw from 2021 to 1918. It was a crazy, but it was only about a 20, 25% jump. It's, that's the discretionary piece that's, and that's what I have noticed is that roller coaster ride has been very tight. You know, in March, we start off with a March of, I mean, very active because rates dipped end of February. Mid-March rates went up again and business just stopped. And then April, so we're, we used to roller coaster ride about every three or four months. Now we're doing it every three or four weeks. So consumers are, are they're watching the news they're they're reacting it's, so, everybody's they, got their barf bags out they got that fire hose <laughs> aimed at them of information yeah. and they're trying to swim through it so a lot of opportunity a lot of nerves a lot of ups and downs what are your trainers and your sales managers um, focusing on right now in terms of helping your agents help their consumers uh, parse this out and figure out what to do We've we've learned through going through the the pandemic a couple of years back and all that that um, you can't do too much information. Just about the time you figure you're burying our our all of our realtors with information is about the time they have the time and inclination to start absorbing. So we've been dumping information at them. We we happen to have a research department, a team that actually spends their all their day doing research. So so we're giving market reports weekly. We're doing a monthly, we're doing videos, we do town halls, we're actually overdue, we need to do one um, next few weeks. Um, but we just drive as much information. We and KCM, for example, is a great piece. We have all of our agents have access to a KCM program. So the objective is to give them dialogue on what, not just numbers, but what to say. Uh, how does how do you interpret yeah. that days on markets are going up or down, or the month supply of inventory has moved to X or Y, or, or more importantly, um, that the press started to, to talk about values going down three or four months ago, and in fact, at least in our market, they weren't going down, but the mix of business had changed. The high end market had settled, so it looked like values were declining. They were actually still increasing. But we were able to dig into the numbers with our team and give the our realtors a a, um, a dialogue, a conversation point. So we try to do that and make it easy for them with uh, preset 
posts for social and for their conversation and and, uh, and do that and and have lots and lots of Zoom education. We use we use we've used Mike, we've used Matt Ferrara, we've used Dan, we use all of your team to to help guide our agents on the uh, uh, on the informational piece and also up here the mental piece of being able to wrap their arms around. No, that's great. And you know the the more. Um, conversations there are in the particular environment of, oh, well, you know, do buyers really need a real estate agent and, you know, all the antitrust stuff that's going on, buyer agents are, you know, going to be the way of the dinosaur. I mean, it's, it's this stuff, right? I mean, this is where that value lies is there's nobody who's going to get to, um, get to really give the lay of the land to, to consumers the way a real estate agent will. Yeah, we, we also try to um, to give them a dialogue that's the right dialogue. The last thing the consumer really wants to hear is, well, it's a good time to buy or sell. It doesn't matter, regardless of market. So we, we really try to, to, to focus on them being true counselors and not to be afraid to tell a client, this is not a good time for you to sell or to buy. Sit back and wait and, and focus on that, that conversation, that counseling, and focus on also get, getting away a little bit because because so much information is shot at them on the financial aspect of it to back away. And, and that's a huge piece of it. But it's also you're buying a house for 50 reasons and financial is really number 10. It feels like it's number one. So so go through that true conversation counseling process. And and uh, uh, and that, that that works. That helps helps a lot. I, I think you've partially answered my my next uh, question, but there's you know it's been it's been such a crazy couple of years, such a hot market, and I, I know us being immersed in this in this uh, industry have seen quite a few kind of fascinating mistakes and learning lessons being made out there. Um, from your perspective, what have you seen? And I, I, I think maybe just sort of doing that, it's a great time to buy or sell might be one of them. Um, but but that kind of sort of misstep and how are you working to ensure as this normalization happens that, that your folks are staying far away from that kind of mistake? Well, that, that certainly is one. I think another is that um, that as realtors, uh, not just unique to our organization, across our industry, we're really good at servicing our clients, but not very good at finding them. It just doesn't come natural. You'd think that you know we're called salespeople, but most part, most people didn't get into real estate to, to be a salesperson or to sell. So, so the last two years, although it was hectic during the insane times of 2021 and very tiring, it was what realtors are built for. Point the fire hose at me, and I'll just manage the clients and the process. Now that it's settled back, the toughest thing for them to do is to shift to a more normal market and reach out and find clients, develop those relationships outside of a transaction. So that's the, that's probably the hardest thing um, for them to work on. And as I mentioned before, there are more realtors. The competition is higher. So uh, I saw a chart once um, that had a correlation of the number of realtors in the United States compared to number of home sales. And it is a perfect correlation, not surprising, shockingly. And it's about a seven month lag. So as sales drop, we'll see that that shift. But, and when you think about it, half the realtors in our industry have never seen a market different than 
one that's been rising every year consistently with a little bit of insanity thrown in every once in a while. Never seen a, a changed market. So, so that's probably the biggest challenge is, is, um, is realtors understanding the intensity that they need to be, they need to act, that, that lack of, of understanding how significant that action needs to be. What tools are your sales managers and your trainers putting in place to help them navigate that reality? Uh, well, we're trying to be very specific with tools and with things as opposed to, yes, you need encouragement, but you know, they, they, what they're looking for are specific. So I mentioned the, the market research stuff that we do, and that's, that's important. Give them tools. Um, we, um, we rolled out an, our own eye buying and power buying programs so that they, and we do a, a bridge loan program so that we, we can create transactions that wouldn't normally happen either the bridge between buyer seller or fix up the home that they're with and all those pieces. So those things, uh, tend to work pretty well. Um, we do a lot of, um, we call them listing love letters, but those things work really well where we send out targeted neighborhoods. I have a buyer for your neighborhood. We have an automated program we gave our agents where they just have to choose, draw a circle around the map and a nice little invitation letter goes out to all the clients saying, I've got a buyer for your neighborhood. Um, we do a lot of events. We call them prime time. We actually borrowed it years ago from, uh, from Bill Ravis. He'd done it called prime time. We still do it where we get everyone together uh, food, booze, all those things, and they reach out to their clients for a couple hours in the evening. And they'll, they'll call my brother and I with each appointment that they make. So we'll get three or 400 agents phoning us in, asking, telling us they've just got this appointment or sent out this text or whatever, got a response. And, uh, but it's, it's basically activity-based. It's, it's getting them together so that they're reaching out to their, mainly their sphere, we don't try to anticipate that they're going to be knocking on doors or calling for sale by owners or those things. So it's just sphere relationship and how to react to that and how to manage that and reach out to them. And ultimately, this is a relationship and a communication business we're in. At the same time, there's lots of great, I mean, you just mentioned a bunch of sort of innovative tools, new technologies that you're helping your your team implement. Um, we've just seen so much. I mean, talking about fire hose, there has been so much technology, so much innovation over the last 10 years. Your personal opinion in terms of what you've seen, what is the most significant or lasting innovation that you've seen versus like hyped passing trends stuff that is just a bunch of baloney? <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to, uh, to say. I would say, first of all, I would say all the innovation, all the noise, all the money is wonderful because it's, it's money that we didn't have to spend <laughs> trying yeah. to figure this stuff out. So some other guy that's either brilliant or brilliant for a moment and dumb spent all the money on these great things. And, and yes, there's been a lot of noise, a lot of things passing by. And uh, we, we did one thing years back where we were trying to, and actually it was, it was our children that made the comment to us of, why do you write these checks for earnest money deposits? Is that's most of my friends don't even have checking accounts. Why are we doing this? So we looked to see if someone had a system that would not require earnest money deposits, and there was nothing in existence. This is probably six years ago. Went to PayPal and everyone else, and um, so we created our own. So that was one thing. We we tend to try to be like Apple, where we we don't invent anything. We just try to take someone else's idea 
<laughs> and make it work for us. But this case, we, yeah. we actually, it was, it was an app that Wells Fargo had that we jury rigged with, with rubber bands and duct tape, but it worked. And, uh, and I think now we have 85% of our EMDs are, are uh, uh, ACH direct deposit stuff. And, and now there are 20 companies that do that. So it, it, it catches on. But, but um, so there are a lot of great pieces, a lot of good innovation. The innovators tend to come from the edges. Innovation comes from there's a specific niche, a specific thing, and then they, then they eat the way towards the middle. So, um, uh, so there's been a lot of those things, a lot of new business models for realtors. Realtors didn't have the choices they have now. Now they have lots of choices for business models. And um, and a lot of different um, different tools to use, and that's that's those are the, the the technology is the grease that's sort of pushed along a lot of the change in our industry. But but of the things that are probably going to stand out, certainly the the paperless transaction piece is big, and that's permanent, that's established, that's here. The checklist piece is big. Um, the the end of a real estate closing event is about to happen and happening, and that's gonna happen. Some states never really had it, but but in most they have, in our state they have, and that's going to go away. Um, and it'll facilitate that we're already readjusting how we use our facilities. Facilities are different in how we use them, and we have uh, 2,500 realtors in all of our different systems and buckets, and I would say 70% of them would be considered virtual now, mm-hmm. even though 50% of them have an office somewhere. They're just there's, it's a different world. So, yeah. so that's a big uh, a big shift and a big um, uh, thing. I think that the the power buyer and I buyer products and those things that came into play will have a position in the market. I don't think they're going to go away, but they're niche players. They're they're for people with specific needs and desires, not a mainstream product for the marketplace. And they they were shown to be that way even at the height of their their interest. So. Um, um, but um, yeah, so so how we use our space, how we manage our transaction, all those things are great. And the good news with all the technology is that it is freeing up time. Yeah. Our realtors have a lot more time. Yeah. And now that will translate eventually into more time and is translating to more time for consumers, probably a cost shift for consumers, that savings we pass on to consumers in time and money. Um, but also, the realtors will have more time to do more transactions. So I don't know that the fear that realtors will be replaced and that that the value proposition will go away um, isn't. Well, it might be true for some realtors that don't adjust to the to the world, but right. but there'll be a, a position for us and we'll have a specific role. Uh, it'll be different than it is now. It'll be compensated differently than it is now. But it doesn't mean that the overall value proposition will be that much different in terms of revenue taken in. Well, and and to your point on agents using their time differently, I think ultimately, correct me if, if you think differently, but your point on how research heavy and information heavy you are in terms of your focus with your agents, that's going to continue to increase the value. The more time they have to really understand the market. Uh, the research, the transactions, and be the the brain behind their client, um, the more the more value they're ultimately going to bring to the table. Yeah, I, you're right. I think that's true. I think the the there's so much information that consumers get. Um, yeah. What's the the psychological term? The paradox of choice. You have <laughs> so many choices to make that you can't make a choice. 
analysis paralysis, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> the layman's term for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and so so the realtor's value proposition is to clear that noise up. And that's way more valuable and more sophisticated than just giving the information. So so if you can get to that level and, and really provide that information, then it does. Just like technology is long-term is not a differentiator between any business, and certainly in the brokerage business, it isn't. It's, it's how you apply the technology, how you allow your realtors to apply the how you help them use it, and how you, you push it along is the, is the differentiating, not the, not the platform itself. Yeah. I mean, pivoting a little bit on our conversation here, but I mean, look at ChatGPT. You know, the, I, I roll my eyes when I hear people say, oh, it's going to replace this career or that career. No, it's a tool. It's a tool. Come on. Well, now it might replace some careers. So, it, so it I could. think there's a this chance that it will. Lawyers, um, maybe. May, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <Yikes>. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, what it will do is, again, this is only the same thing. It'll free up time. So it'll free up lawyers' time. It'll free up transaction coordinators' time. It'll free up realtors' time. So, but you got to do something with that time that's as effective and valuable. Or you're right, you are being replaced. Well, speaking of not being replaced, your yeah. company—it's a family company. It's one of the most significant family companies in the country. You guys have been around for a hundred years, and often the way with startups, small family companies at the inception is they live for a few years, they grow, and then, you know, you are continuing to bring generations into uh, the real estate one family of companies. Talk about your longevity and how you are continuing to sort of work this as a family business. Did you, did, is it strong arming, like <laughs> conversations at the breakfast table? How, well, how is this working? There's, there's a lot of that. I think more than anything, it's probably being flexible and having a small family. Uh, so <laughs> my father was an only child. It's just my brother and I. Now we, we have four kids in the family, but but it, it, it often biz, family businesses fall apart because there are too many miles and too many stuff. So we did have that advantage. We had a relatively narrow path. But um, but I think flexibility also is a key. And and there are some there are core things that you pass on from generation to generation. Our grandfather was was very innovative. He was uh, one of those crazy mad scientist guys that tried a lot of different things, and uh, that culture carried forward from generation to generation. He. He was doing 10,000 just listed, just sold. Uh, I have a buyer for your neighborhood postcards out of the basement of his office in Detroit back in, 19, in, the, in the 30s. He, he, he thought that having more salespeople in an office was better than having fewer. Synergy, the activity, all boats would rise. So he had an office of 100 salespeople and everyone else was five or six. He hired women. Half his sales force were female in the 40s. I would say he was a chauvinist like everyone else in his world, but everyone, all the men were at, were in the army. <laughs> so he had to hire. He women. had to, yeah. <laughs> but, but he, but anyways, he figured it out. And, and so it's that flexibility of, um, you, you may not have a grand vision or theme of where you're going to go. Most of us don't, but you have to make sure that when you're presented an opportunity, don't blow it, take advantage of it build it, nurture it. And I think that's kind of what we have done over the years is we've come across a lot of different opportunities. You know, our, our um, title company was because my father was mad at our title relationship. They weren't closing our loans fast enough. So by God, we'll start our own. 
our mortgage stubbornness too. Yeah. Our mortgage company was we wanted to do bridge loans to help our buyers from one house to another. So there's there's always but then you once you start it you figure out how it can be more than just that spark of an idea how it can be more than how it can can help benefit across the organization and, and each piece grew. So how are you planning on continuing this strategy of success? What are what's sort of the the corporate and and uh, company values that you're instilling for the next generation? And what's the plan, Dan? Yeah, I, I think we're um, what we settled on over the years was, and again, it was we sort of stumbled in, into the structure because we're since we're not we do franchise our brand, but we're not a franchise company, so we never bought that box of. Mm-hmm. Of services, so so that was a disadvantage in some ways, but in long term was advantage because we had to do our own. We had to create our own value proposition, our own why, our own box, our own things. So so we did that, and and we we stumbled onto a bunch of different strategies. One that we've been using for the last twenty five years is a multi brand strategy. So it's a it's sort of a house of brands approach, which is how you describe the hotels, Hilton, Marriott, that type of thing. So it is a, a core brand with a bunch of niche markets. And, and that's how we've, we've grown and done that. So we have, we have several brands on the brokerage side. We have several brands on the mortgage side and the title side, uh, each with its own position. So our growth going forward is, to, is first the realization that no one controls 100% of the market. Uh, even though, I mean, our, our most dominant market, which is unusual at that percentage is about 35, 40%. So that means 60% of someone else. So uh, we think that in the long run, what we can take advantage of is some of the things we do really well, which is the, the, uh, the support pieces, the, the marketing, the branding, the uh, IT, and not just the technology, but the infrastructure, as I was talking about earlier, that, that staffing, the education, boring things like accounting and HR and hiring and all those pieces that, that that um, we can provide as a platform, regardless of whether you are a, a carriage trade brand, a discount to consumer or to the agent brand, all the different pieces, a team, all those different geographic and, and business model niches. So our objective is to do that. So we may not cover every market, but we want to um, make sure when a consumer comes to us, our share of that is very high. So we can get in that 60, 65% share of a consumer, but we're doing it with 10 or 15 different positions in the marketplace. So not new and anywhere has been doing that with, with their brands and C21 and CB and all. But what we want to be is where our market positions are tangibly different. They're not a distinction without a difference, which is mm-hmm. what many franchises are. They're different names, but they're still basically the same thing in the background. We want ours, and right now ours are each we're a very distinct position in the marketplace, and we want to make sure that we build that piece out. So that's that's where we're going, and and our kids are in the business probably up to their waists and having a ball, and uh, each uh, in our various brands touching that those pieces and and our investment side of things. So um, so we're uh, we're pushing them along as fast as we can. <laughs> that's great. Um, unbelievably, we are at the bottom of the hour, but I cannot end without getting my my favorite closing question from you, which is of all of the leadership advice that you've gotten uh, in your life and that you find yourself passing on um, to your folks. 
who are who are aspiring leaders, what what are the words that you come back to over and over again? Um, I'd say, uh, at least for our culture and our style, be, be flexible and be kind, and and I guess maybe also be curious, experiment. Um, those those focus. Everyone uh, creates a box. As I said earlier, you get the box. Now, sometimes they buy the box in the franchise, but you create this box that you create. So be that, focus on that thing that you want to be. But also remember that the world shifts, so you need to keep an That's where the flexible piece comes on. Keep, be willing to, uh, I guess, have the fortitude to be willing to walk away from and throw away your business model, but have the wisdom, I guess, to know when and how fast. But if you keep that in mind, you're not going to get caught in one little box. And that's what you talk about generational shift yeah. and business shift. And look at our industry where uh, there were dominant models at one time and they're not so much anymore. It's because they haven't looked at it that way. They haven't been will willing to walk away from what they've got to evolve to the next level. Words to live by and uh, beautiful Thanks. words to close on. Dan, thank you so much for your, your time today. I always thank love you. talking you and uh, looking forward to the next time we get to hang out. Great. Thanks. See you soon. Thank you.